This is Diane Horn, your host on the sustainability segment of Mind Over Matters on KEXP Seattle 90.3 FM by mobile app and on the web at kexp.org. My guest today is Nick Norton, Executive Director of the Washington Association of Land Trusts, a collective voice for our state's land conservation organizations. Nick Norton is here to tell us about the work of Washington Land Trust to conserve land and help address climate change. Welcome, Nick. Good to be here. Thanks, Dan. What is a land trust? Well, I think the work that land trusts do will vary a lot depending on where they work. But really at its core, I think a land trust is about protecting important conservation values for the public. And I think there are two things that make land trusts unique in how they do that. And one is that the work they do is voluntary. So they only work with private landowners who are ready and willing to establish a conservation legacy to protect wildlife habitat or recreation areas or a public park or community open space or a place that's important for water recharge. All those are sort of values that provide a benefit to the public that land trusts seek to protect. The other thing that I think is really unique and interesting about land trusts is their grassroots. And a lot of times land trusts evolved or grew up from a small group of community members who said, well, this landscape is fundamentally important to me personally and to our community and our quality of life and now and for the future. And so they created, you know, it was a groundswell. So they really do their work hand in hand with local communities. And I think that's a pretty powerful thing. So they're able to work with private landowners and the local community and also connect with partners at the regional and state and national level to help respond creatively and quickly to conservation threats or opportunities that come up. So I think they're really unique in the conservation space. And so it's pretty exciting for me to get to work with all of them. Would you say more about how land trusts actually protect land? Yeah, yeah. I would say there's kind of three tools or ways that land trusts will protect land. And, and, you know, one is pretty simple. They may buy or receive land donated from a landowner and they'll own it just like anybody else would own a parcel of land. Another way is with a conservation easement. And that's a voluntary legal agreement between a landowner and a land trust where the owner gives up certain rights on the property. You know, I'm thinking maybe the right to clear cut the whole property or the right to subdivide and develop it. In exchange for giving up those rights, the land trust is entrusted with those to make sure that those restrictions on the property are followed forever in perpetuity. So the landowner still owns the land. They still manage it. They still pay the taxes on the land. But the land trust is essentially entrusted with making sure that they follow those restrictions they agreed on. And that conservation easement document essentially follows that property. It's tied to the land, to the next owner, and the next, and the next. So that's another tool. I would say the sort of third way that land trusts work to protect land is through partnerships. You know, I mean, a big source of their power, like I was saying earlier, is that they can be flexible. They have local partners. They have state partners. They have federal agency partners. And so because of their grassroots connections, they can help facilitate great solutions where maybe something will end up with a city, you know, as part of a park, or maybe it'll end up with the county. But they were instrumental in helping facilitate that transaction. So it's not so much a tool, but those partnerships are really valuable in making all that work happen. Well, you've said a bit about this already, but what types of land are protected by land trusts? Yeah, and I mentioned it briefly, but it goes back to this idea of sort of conservation value. How do we determine what has value and provides a public benefit. And those priorities are going to differ depending on your landscape and your geography and your local community a little bit. But in general, there are sort of three or four major categories of things that 
actually the IRS kind of lays out the framework for what constitutes conservation value or provides a public benefit. And so kind of the big ones are wildlife habitat. Does it provide habitat that's important for certain threatened or endangered species? That would be a particularly important piece of land. Is it something that could be used for public recreation, you know, like a trail system or a city park? You know, that would provide significant conservation value to the public. Is it something that's important for flood control or water recharge, water quality? Those sorts of things are also part of the conservation value of a landscape. Is it part of a big scenic ridge that's seen by a lot of people and it has some aesthetic value to the community? That's also a public benefit. And then the kind of last but definitely not least is at-risk working landscapes. So working forest land or working farmland that's critical to local and regional economies is also something that by protecting it provides a benefit to the state and the nation as a whole in terms of producing food and fiber for the future. What is the mission of the Washington Association of Land Trusts? Our mission, and we started without any actual full-time staff back in 2007-2008, and our mission is to essentially elevate the voice of land trusts and help them do their work better across the state with the goal of increasing the pace and scale of conservation and you know, helping protect the lands and waters on which we all depend. So doing everything we can to help make our land trusts individually stronger and collectively stronger. How many land trusts are part of your group and what are some examples of the land trusts that make up your membership? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So right now we have 25 members and it varies year to year, you know, plus or minus a little bit, but that's a pretty good indicator of how many members we usually have. And those range all the way from smaller organizations with maybe one executive director on staff to organizations that may have, I'm thinking now, 60 or 70 staff. So, for example, we have the Nature Conservancy and the Trust for Public Land are member organizations with the Washington Association of Land Trust. So they work statewide and nationally. And then we also have, in you know, a smaller land trust like the Lummi Island Heritage Trust, who works explicitly on Lummi Island in Puget Sound. And then we have land trusts geographically all over the state. We have the Blue Mountain Land Trust working in, you know, southeast part of Washington. We have the Inland Northwest Land Conservancy up in the Spokane area, the kind of northeast region. We have PCC Farmland Trust, which does a lot of work here in kind of the Emerald Corridor, Whatcom Land Trust, all the way up in the northwestern part of the state. So it really varies, and we cover everywhere, just about. What are the key priorities of the Washington Land Trust at present? In terms of meeting our mission to kind of strengthen our collective voice, we do that in three different ways. One is by advocating. So we advocate on behalf of land trusts with decision makers and policymakers. And so that comes down in a couple different ways. One thing we will do is we'll help coordinate tours with legislators so they can go out with land trusts and see some of their new exciting projects and learn about the important benefits they provide to the community. Sometimes that means me going to Olympia and talking with legislators or agency folks to talk about conservation funding programs or maybe talk about specific kind of nuts and bolts of policies around those programs to help them work better for land trusts and other people who would apply to them. So that's kind of one piece is this advocacy piece. And then another part of our work is, I guess I would just say it's a convening function. So the idea is that if we bring land trusts together and we bring partners together to talk and collaborate and learn from each other, that we'll all be better off. So usually what that means is that every other year we host what we call a land camp which is a large gathering of land trust practitioners and other partners 
across the Pacific Northwest, so Oregon and Washington. And I think we're going to be adding Idaho in as sort of a part of that larger conference this year. We host a larger training once a year. This year was a climate training that I imagine we'll talk about a little bit more later. We also try and facilitate, you know, peer-to-peer learning amongst land trusts so they can get up to speed on best practices or if, you know, a land trust is doing something that other people can learn about, we help connect them together throughout the year. And we also have quarterly board meetings that are a great way for us to talk things out and kind of learn what people are doing and just have those conversations. So that's another big piece. And at the last piece is kind of communicating private land conservation, the story to the state, you know, in ways that an individual interest may not do. And we could connect by telling our collective impact through e-news or newsletters or mailings, things like that. So how can we tell that story to a larger audience? So those are kind of the three big pieces of what we try and do. I'm Diane Horn, and my guest is Nick Norton, Executive Director of the Washington Association of Land Trusts. Our topic is the work of Washington Land Trusts to conserve land and help address climate change. And you are tuned to the sustainability segment of Mind Over Matters on KEXP Seattle 90.3 FM, by mobile app, and on the web at kexp.org. What are some examples of successful projects that have been or are being carried out by Washington State Land Trusts? Well, one in particular that I just had the pleasure to visit the other day, and it's known as Harmony Farms. And this is a project that was done by Capital Land Trust down in Thurston County. And the focus of this project was really habitat protection as well as education. So it's a small farm that is kind of the future home of their inspiring kids preserve is what they call it. And it was purchased in 2018, and it's along Henderson Inlet. And it's actually a really important place for young juvenile Chinook salmon to come and feed. It's a very protected area. And it has, you know, multiple pocket estuaries, salt marsh, tidal and freshwater wetlands, all in this small property that they bought. So it's an incredible learning space. And so because of its location, it's actually within, I think there are something like 30 public schools within a half hour drive. So it's really well placed to be kind of a core of some of the STEM educational work that they do at Capital Land Trust. And so for me, that's just really exciting to see the ways that Land Trust are not only protecting an incredible habitat that will benefit salmon and orca, which is something that's been on all of our minds this year, but also really connecting children to the land and helping them learn those same things and take it forward to the next generation. Another one that I think is really good is the Saddle Rock Natural Area, and that's one over by Wenatchee. So this is a project that the Chelan Douglas Land Trust has done back in 2011, and it's 325 acres right overlooking the city of Wenatchee, which even since 2011 has grown significantly, and you know the recreational interest in that area has grown as well. So it's kind of an iconic landscape right outside of town. It's a really kind of vital recreational hub for the community. And one thing that's interesting about that is that the Chelan Douglas Land Trust now doesn't own that, but they have a conservation easement on it. And the city actually owns the land. So it's a great example of what we talked about earlier is how land trusts are partnering with other partners to make this work happen. And I thought I'd say beyond just land conservation, I think there's really amazing work that land trusts are doing that involves not just the actual nuts and bolts of protecting acreage, but really working with communities to involve them in that process. And not only that education piece, but kind of empowering them. So there's a couple other examples that I thought might be interesting. One is the Okanagan Land Trust up in north central Washington. And they actually do a speaker series called Okanology, but they bring in speakers to talk about important natural resource issues or kind of local geology or wildlife things 
And it's really an incredible way for the community to learn about and connect with their landscape and kind of enhance our understanding of conservation beyond just protecting acreage. One other one that I think is really kind of neat is Forterra, another member organization of ours. They work mostly in kind of South Puget Sound area, but also, you know, a lot of different places all over the state. And they were pretty instrumental in helping to develop a transfer of development rights market where rural areas that had development rights associated with them could basically put them into a market that could be bought by urban areas that were in need of them. And that's a really kind of innovative way of protecting thousands and thousands of acres. So the things that land trusts do really, really run the gamut. What are the opportunities for land trusts to help address climate change? This is a question that land trusts we've wrestled with for a couple years. And seeing the kind of increasing wildfires in the state and increased flood events and wrestling with our role. And I think back in 2017, we all sat down and said, well, what does the science tell us about this issue of kind of rapid environmental change and and what role do we have to play? And so out of that came a set of climate principles that we developed that we agreed on. And really what it said, you know, the basis of it was that natural climate solutions which I'll kind of describe a little bit in more detail, are of fundamental importance in helping to mitigate the impacts and the effects of climate change. And so when I say natural climate solutions, really what that means in essence is the capacity of our landscapes and our land to mitigate climate change by either you know, storing carbon or helping reduce the impacts of flood events or fire events. And we can do that through a combination of conservation, restoration, and long-term management. So there's a suite of different things that we can do to help combat this issue of environmental change. Maybe the best way to think about it is that these natural climate solutions, you know, if we were all in on those globally, if we said, let's do everything we can to conserve, restore, and manage according to the best science around climate change, we could actually meet 37% of our greenhouse gas reduction goals according to the Paris Climate Agreement by 2030. So that's an incredible chunk, and that's a pretty staggering number. And if we think about it in the context of the United States, if we said, well, let's try and do everything we can using these natural climate solutions, that could actually offset 21% of our national climate emissions annually. You know, and that's basically equivalent and more to taking all the cars and trucks off the road. So the land has an incredible capacity to store carbon, and we're still beginning to learn how to do that and, and how best to do it. How can land trusts contribute to increasing carbon storage in forest, agricultural soils, and grassland? Maybe I'll start with forest because I think it's easiest for us to connect with because trees are basically giant sticks of carbon. So, you know, I think we can envision that they're an important source or way to sequester carbon. And I think the first piece of the puzzle is really helping to avoid conversion of forest land. According to the U.S. Forest Service, by 2060, we might lose as many as 34 million acres of forest land to subdivision and development. If we just protect less than half of those, that would be equivalent to 40 million tons of CO2 that we're sequestering or keeping locked up in trees in a natural form annually. That's a huge number. So that's a piece of it is this actual land protection through either purchasing land or a conservation easement like we talked about earlier. The other piece is management. And there's a lot of different ways that land trusts or anyone who owns forest land can manage it to help increase its storage of carbon. The kind of simplest example would be to increase the rotation of your harvest. Maybe you would move it from 
25 years to 35 year harvest. And what that would do would be increase the size of the trees and ultimately the amount of carbon on that landscape. It might also increase water supply because those younger trees are actually transpiring more water and they're using water on a unit per unit basis more. And so there's actually measurable differences in water and supply depending on the age of the forest. So that's a thing you could do. You can make sure that you are thinning to reduce competition and reduce die-off from those trees that just can't compete. That's another simple management technique that you can use to increase carbon storage in forests. And when you do replanting or something like that after a harvest, you can plant more climate-adapted species based on what you think the climate will do and based on the best science. Those are some things that land trusts can do or even help encourage landowners to do or provide technical support to understand those principles and help put those into action on the ground. As far as farmland, I think a lot of people maybe don't think about farmland as being a critical piece of natural climate solutions, but it actually, our productive soils have an incredible ability to store and sequester carbon. And I think some of those same techniques or overall ideas apply not only to forests, but to farms, that it's important for us to conserve them and avoid conversion. The U.S. converted almost 31 million acres of ag land between 1992 and 2012 and we lose 172 acres every hour. So it's pretty staggering. And when you look at it and you run the data, an acre of ag land versus an acre of development, it's somewhere between 58 to 70 times less carbon emissions and greenhouse gases that come off that land on a per acre basis. So really preventing conversion is also important when it comes to farmland. And then the other piece of it, again, is really what could we do management-wise to enhance our soil health and our carbon in our soils. And, you know, we kind of talk about it as regenerative agriculture or carbon farming is kind of how people talk about it. And, you know, that basically means building the soil carbon level through, you know, maybe planting a cover crop or rotating crops or doing less tillage so that it's not off-gassing as much, the soil. And in doing those things, in maybe investing in a drill, so you're seeding directly through the old crop. So you're reducing evaporation of water and you're getting better yields. So really a lot of these practices that not only would help sequester carbon, they're really beneficial in terms of economic benefits as well. They're better at storing water, so they produce better yields. So it really is a triple bottom line scenario if we are able to help provide assistance and encourage producers to engage in regenerative agriculture. And how about grasslands? I'm less of an expert, admittedly, on grasslands, but native grasslands in particular, the amount of carbon in the soil is very high with those deep, deep root structures that really provide a lot of organic matter in the soil. So it's, again, management. If you're doing livestock or on rangeland or something like that, you know, the way you manage and the way that livestock move can have a big impact on making sure that those grasslands retain that carbon in the soil, as well as preventing conversion there as well. So those same principles apply. You are tuned to the sustainability segment of Mind Over Matters on KEXP Seattle 90.3 FM by mobile app and on the web at kexp.org. I'm Diane Horn, and my guest is Nick Norton, Executive Director of the Washington Association of Land Trusts. Our topic is the work of Washington Land Trust to conserve land and help address climate change. What is going on at present with Washington State Land Trust to help address climate change? Yeah, and I'll put in a proviso here that the work of land trusts, all of us kind of coming together to talk about how we interface with this issue of climate change is 
somewhat new. I think we're still kind of working through some of those larger questions about how we do that. So, you know, recently in mid-November, we hosted a climate training that I mentioned earlier in collaboration with the Land Trust Alliance, which is sort of the national body of land trusts across the nation and the Coalition of Oregon Land Trusts. And so we had about 100 people there. And I think that was the first opportunity for all of us to really wrestle with some of these issues. We've been talking about it for a couple years, but really to think about how is it that we're incorporating climate science into our conservation planning? So how do we strategically identify those pieces of land that will provide the biggest benefit in terms of mitigating the effects of climate change? How do we communicate our role? Just like everybody else, sometimes I struggle with that feeling of futility around it's such a global problem and what can we do about it? And so figuring out how as land trust we can say this is a global problem, but there are local impacts that we can see and that we need to be aware of in our communities and that there are local solutions to that problem and here's what they look like. So how do we communicate that to our members and to our communities? Trying to figure out how we can better manage and steward our lands, like I talked about earlier, whether it's you know, increasing rotations, how do we manage fuel loads, all those things in our forests, you know, how can we encourage better management of our farmlands, and then how do we actually finance those projects? You know, how do we bring money to bear on projects that will move the needle in terms of helping mitigate the effects of climate change. And so I have a few examples of what some land trusts are starting to do, but I think it's an exciting area for us that we'll continue to engage in and we'll see some interesting things happening in the next few years. But one example is the Skagit Land Trust. And actually they've been working since 2014 to integrate climate change thinking into their conservation work. And what that really means on the ground is that they've been re-emphasizing or focusing on protection of wetlands because they will provide flood mitigation, you know, in the event, you know, we're seeing more of our precipitation come in the form of rain rather than snow. And so the risk of that, as well as fluctuating temperatures, is that you have these flood events. And these wetlands can really soak up some of that and help to kind of mitigate the impacts of flooding. They're focusing heavily on waterfront property because if we're building those houses close to the water, there's the natural ebb and flow and change of the water with sea level rise. By protecting those waterfronts, it actually reduces future infrastructure damage and economic damage to the region. And then also they're focusing and they've been trying to protect uh, feeder bluffs, which are these large, sandy, rocky, gravelly slopes. I'm sure you've seen them as you've traveled around Puget Sound. And as the waves break them down, they continually recharge sediment not only providing habitat for forage fish and salmon, but also to kind of keep those beaches recharged around that area. So that recently they actually finished a project this year called Kelly's Point, and it's actually a 27-acre property that has a giant feeder bluff on it that will really help to continually recharge the shorelines around that area. So that's a really exciting one. They're also even starting to talk about the local impacts of climate change in their watersheds as part of their communications. Their newsletter talked about flooding in the Nookachamps watershed in this past Thanksgiving, talked about the drought stress, western red cedars that they're seeing on their preserves that may be a function of our increasingly warm and dry summers in the western side of the state. Another really interesting example is the Nisqually Land Trust. So they work in the Nisqually watershed, kind of south Puget Sound area, feeding from Mount Rainier out into Puget Sound. And they have a property that's called the Mount Rainier Forest Gateway Reserve, and it's 520 acres. And they actually ended up partnering with Microsoft 
who was looking as part of a $20 million a year initiative to offset all their emissions globally. And so essentially what they did is they worked to create the first carbon credit transaction in Washington state, whereby Microsoft purchased a bunch of carbon credits on that property that would protect those forests from being harvested. And that carbon that was going to be kept in those trees would actually have some value. So that was the first carbon credit transaction in the state. And, you know, it was a totally voluntary carbon market project. And they're certainly looking to do more of that. And other land trusts, I think, are excited about the possibility of carbon markets to help them finance some of their work. And then there are a handful of land trusts now that are working to collect detailed climate data and habitat data to help figure out where their efforts are best spent. So if we can gather information on projected sea level rise, if we get really good resolution on the location of forage fish populations in Puget Sound, if we can identify habitat types with good resolution and a number of other spatial data layers, what does that mean in terms of how do we choose and target those areas that really can provide the biggest bang for our buck, essentially, you know, places that will maintain intact ecosystems, have a high potential for carbon sequestration, or those areas that might actually act as a climate refugia for wildlife as ecosystems change. These areas that have maybe a lot of microhabitats or are heavily connected to other habitats to, to provide those refugia and provide a more resilient ecosystem in the context of wildlife as the climate changes over time. So those are just a few examples, exciting stuff. Well, what's the message you'd like to leave our listeners with? I really want to echo the power of what land trusts do that I mentioned at the beginning, that this is work that's done hand in hand with private landowners and with local communities. And so that grassroots support and that grassroots engagement is just critical to our landscapes, to our future. And so I would just encourage everyone to find out if they have a land trust where they are, engage with them. And I think they'll find it a tremendously rewarding opportunity to learn about their landscape and find other people who really believe in the importance of our ecosystems, our open space, to make us healthier and happier and more resilient over the long term. Well, thanks so much for being here, Nick. Yeah, thank you, Dan. You are just listening to Nick Norton, Executive Director of the Washington Association of Land Trusts. For more information, check on the web at walandtrust.org. Sustainability segment interviews are available as podcasts along with KEXP's music podcasts. Go to the podcast section of KEXP's website at kexp.org. I'm Diane Horn. Thanks for listening on 90.3 FM by mobile app and at kexp.org.